to lean into the discomfort. Lean into it. Ask the question, why is this so uncomfortable to you? Let's have that conversation. Where is this coming from? Let's trace it back. So I understand the fruit. I can see that you're upset about it. But let's look at the root. What is the root reason for this? Right? And so if we can do that, then we can move the ball forward. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation by helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Center for Congregations podcast. My name is Matt Burke. I'm the Education Director and the Northeast Director for the Center for Congregations. And with me, as usual, is Ben Tapper. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Good to have you here. In this episode, a little bit later, we're going to be getting into an interview with Mackenzie Scott Lewis, who's the Northwest Director of the Center for Congregations. But before Mackenzie joined the Center for Congregations, he worked as a consultant in inclusion and diversity efforts in organizations. So, Ben, how's this topic been popping up for you in your work with congregations around the state? You know, I've seen a lot of congregations, especially congregations that are trying to engage youth and young adults, have a renewed focus around anti-racism work. And that's been fascinating to see, you know, whereas if we were to look at cases I was getting in March or February of 2020, I heard almost no congregations that I was working with personally speaking directly about anti-racism. And then the, the spring and summer hit. Protests erupted, and all of a sudden, we had a lot of congregations. I had a lot of congregations I was working with realize that if they wanted to reach the millennial age group, that they probably needed to have more of a focus in that topic area. And so it's just been fascinating to see not only that congregations are more concerned and connected about what it means to be anti-racist, but how they're going about it, who they're inviting in to speak, what they're trying to learn in order to engage uh, younger folks and to be part of this work. Does that mirror what you've seen in the Northeast region of the state? Yeah, at least from what I've heard, I don't know that I've had a lot of specific encounters with exactly what you're talking about, but I've heard other consultants talking about the same thing, especially as they engage more with young adults. That's definitely a concern for younger generations. And it's interesting to me that it seems to be a little bit of a generational gap in terms of that subject matter. There is definitely a generational gap. And I feel like the generation that often gets lost is the Gen Xers. Like, we don't talk about Gen Xers. <laughs> yeah, as a Gen Xer, I can vouch for that. We are the lost and forgotten generation because <laughs> you have this giant subset of boomers, and then you have an even bigger subset of millennials, and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, Xers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're here too. We're people too. So that is really fascinating for me to observe. You know, we got congregations filled with boomers trying to figure out how to maintain the traditions while also moving forward. And then you've got millennials that these congregations want to keep, but the millennials are like, okay, no, we have to try things a different way. And so congregations are often wrestling with what it means to maintain enough of their identity while also 
learning new things, embracing uh, radically different ways of being and existing in community, of affecting their communities, or even thinking about their communities. And, and there's an inherent tension there. I'm just not entirely sure you know, if there's a stereotypical Gen X voice around this idea, what that voice would be. Yeah, I don't know that there is. We tend to be kind of sullen and quiet <laughs> and very, very cynical at times. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. I can tell you the white male Gen X uniform. Oh. Branded t-shirts. Branded t-shirts. Branded t-shirts, yeah. Okay. Any specific so, brands? Well, typically whatever your favorite video games or uh, movies or superheroes, those kinds of things, pretty much if you see a guy, a white guy wearing a t-shirt like that, chances are he's an Xer. I have a very large closet of branded tees myself. Good to know. Did not know this. Learning something new about Generation X today, everyone. <laughs> But yeah, and it's interesting. I don't think a lot of people know how much the diversity in the diversity in the state of Indiana. And what I mean by that is that, of course, Indianapolis is the 13th largest city in the nation. So as you can imagine, it's a very diverse place. Fort Wayne is a city of about 250,000 people. And so there's a good bit of diversity here. But then you move into southeast Indiana, which is very sparsely populated, very rural. And in terms of ethnic diversity, there's just not a whole lot there. But then you move up into Goshen, Indiana, which you would imagine would be similar. And it's actually about close to 50% Latinx at this point. And so the people listening to this podcast, especially if you're in Indiana, your experience of diversity may be very different than other congregations in the state. So it might beg the question, and this is something I'm interested in talking with you about, Ben. It begs the question of, there might be congregations that think, you know, well, why do we need to understand inclusion and diversity and anti-racism when our community is 98, 99%, potentially even 100% white? So why is, is this an important topic? You know, that's an important question. One of the things that I think is critical to remember is that whether you are experiencing racial and ethnic diversity in your immediate physical community or not, due to social media and the prevalence of media channels and the ways we can access information, we are never more than a click away from a different perspective, a different point of view. And so even if you're just thinking about what does it mean to help my community make sense of protests that are happening in larger cities? What does it mean to help my community grapple with what their family and their friends whom they know in these different places might be going through? It's important to have these discussions. It's important to talk about it, let alone the fact that wherever you live, there's no guarantee that the demographics of your community are going to remain the same. Actually, it's much more likely they will shift this year, next year, in the next five or 10 years and so at some point, whether due to the ease of access by which we engage information or because our communities bring in new people, other people leave, you are going to have to face diversity. You're going to have to wrestle with these bigger questions of systemic racism, of prejudice, of bigotry, of privilege. And so why not start now? Yeah, that's such a great point. And in my own journey in this area... I remember being challenged by a speaker who said, you know, hey, if you're interested in embarking on this journey, just start watching more shows that feature and are written by people of color. And just talking about like, you know, even fictional or even uh, sitcoms. And I took that seriously and have started doing that. And it's really taught me a lot. And it's taught me to kind of get out of my own context and learn and listen to the stories of people who are, have a different background, a different upbringing than I did, and to begin to understand what their lives are like and the lens through which they view the world. And it's really opened up my lens to be able to try to take seriously the more serious things that I hear in the news in the area around me. Mm. 
Yeah, it's amazing what just increasing and changing our inputs can do for us, whether it's the movies and shows we watch, the books we read, the podcasts we listen to, just like asking ourselves and taking stock of who the voices are that are shaping us is critical. I do racial equity consulting with a friend of mine, and when we've worked with congregations before, that's one of the things that he always brings up. He's like, hey, check out your libraries if you have a congregational library and ask yourself who has written these books. Look at your hymnals. Like, who wrote the hymns that are featured in, in these works, the songs you're singing at worship. Just begin to pay attention to what demographics of people are shaping the voices that you're hearing, the narratives that you're hearing, and begin to diversify that selection. It's amazing how it can change you. Yeah, and before anybody gets triggered by that kind of idea, nobody's saying that white is bad. And we're not saying that you should not listen to white voices, you should not have white theologians, that your hymn book shouldn't be written by people you know, from white backgrounds. That's not the point, but it's just exposure to the larger world. Because as Ben said, you know, just according to Census Bureau statistics, we as a society are changing. And at some point, you're going to run across these issues in your community. And it may be 10, 20 years down the road, but it's definitely coming. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and something interesting along those lines that I've heard from a podcaster by the name of Jared Bias, he's part of the Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns. And of course, you'd rather listen to us. I mean, of course, Obviously. you want to listen to our podcast. But, yeah. but you know, if you just if you need to just find another one to fill the gaps between our podcast, you know, check them out. <laughs> but Jared, Jared Bias talks about, uh, you know, there is no such thing as theology without an adjective. There's no such thing as an adjectiveless theology. And what he means by that is sometimes people can get uptight when they hear about womanist theology, feminist theology, liberation theology, because they hear that adjective and assume that it's an aberration and it's something different from, quote, normal theology, end quote. But the understanding that the theology that we've been handed down, so many of us, I mean, I'm a white Gen Xer, went to seminary, and my theology was handed down to me through the hands of Western white culture. And it's not bad, but it's just recognizing that. So when I approach the Bible, I'm approaching it from the standpoint of a white Western theology that has framed my background. And it's important for me to read and be conversant with the other theologies. And I may not agree with them, and that's fine, but we shouldn't be afraid of voices that are different from ours, but it helps inform us and at least shape us. And surely there are some things we can learn from them. So an understanding that that whole field, even in theology and biblical studies, paying attention to diversity and inclusion is very important. Yeah, and I think that is why we wanted to have this conversation. You're going to hear in a second with McKinsey. It's because there are a myriad of reasons why congregations and people are engaged in this work and a myriad of reasons why it's important. And so if you're going to be doing this work, if you're going to be doing the work of, you know, centering the margins, centering the marginal voices, then it's important to kind of hear about the do's and don'ts to understand what has worked or what is working for folks and what missteps you might want to try to avoid if you can. And I think that's why I'm so excited that we got to have this conversation with McKinsey and that you all get to hear it because as you're doing the work, maybe you can avoid some missteps that others didn't, or maybe you can learn something about yourselves and the way you're approaching this journey that will help inform the next steps that you take. All right. With all of that said, uh, we'll move now into our interview with McKinsey Scott Lewis. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm your co-host, Ben Tapper, an associate for resource consulting here at our central office, joined by my fellow co-host, Matt Burke, uh, the Northeast Director and Education Director. 
Hey, Matt. Hey, everybody. And our guest this week, the Northwest Director, Mackenzie Lewis. Mackenzie, it's so great to have you this morning. It is great to be with you two on this day. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to explore the wonderful world of anti-racism and diversity and inclusion work, especially as it happens within organizations and congregations. McKinsey, you have a wealth of experience in this world, swimming in these waters, leading organizations, including our own, through some of this work. And so uh, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, I'm wondering, off jump, if you can help our audience and us understand and articulate what the difference is between doing anti-racism work and doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Okay, that's a great question to jump off into because I think it will help us to level set these definitions really mean. And I like to really narrow them down to the point of understanding diversity is simply those differences that we have, whether it's our values or the way we look or any differences that makes us unique as individuals. And inclusion is to incorporate those values, those uniquenesses into whatever environment or meeting or conversations that we have. So that diversity is, yeah, we are very unique. And inclusion is more than just uh, being at the table. It is that you can accept my values and even incorporate, that's the key word here, to incorporate that value or that opinion or my gender or whatever into that conversation, into that policy, into that practice, okay? And then equity is that if you look at each person as unique and individual, it is to provide the resources or opportunities for that individual to have equal access, equal footing. Right. So it may look different for me than it will for you, Ben, or for you, Matt. It is looking at the landscape and making a determination. What is it that you need in order to be in the game? Right. Instead of outside. So a lot of people get equity and, and equality mixed up. Equality is that everybody gets the same thing. And equity is that whatever you need to make things equal, that's what you will receive. That's really helpful, Mackenzie. And just to make sure it's clear in my head, because these are newer ideas to me, that diversity is kind of like presence, right? Like you're here. So we have diversity in terms of presence, but inclusion means I'm here and I'm heard and cared for. Absolutely. And then equity means I'm here, I'm included and cared for, and I'm being provided with the resources I need to thrive here. That's right. That's right. Well said. And so when I look at it as it relates to anti-racism is that the unique difference is the diversity and inclusion and equity is more personal. It's the person. Whereas anti-racism is the system in which the person is operating in. And so it is very plausible for organizations to have great diversity, great inclusion great equity, and still be a racist organization, right? Because it's the systems, it's the structures, it's the institutional, and oftentimes, to be very blunt, it's the intentional setup of a system that causes one thing to be judged as a greater value than the other. 
And when it comes to our skin color, that is where the racism comes in. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like in the work that I do around this, we differentiate between things that are happening internally and things that are happening externally. And so it sounds like issues of diversity and inclusion are largely internal discussions to your point, whose voice is being heard, whose voice is being taken into account when we're making programmatic decisions, policy decisions. And anti-racism work is thinking more about how are our programs and policies playing into these broader societal systems or community systems favorably or unfavorably? Absolutely. Absolutely. The challenge that we have across America and in our institutions, whether it's corporate, nonprofit, congregational, is that we think that these two systems don't marry the system of the individual, if you will, in the system of policies and practices that we put into play. Right. So one has to do with the other and the other has to do with with the one. And so the great way that I like to describe it is a person who is uh, paraplegic could be a big time racist and work in your organization. And your organization is lauded for having people with certain types of challenges, physical challenges in your workplace. Right. And so you might get a lot of shine for that. But yet and still that person or persons could not value the other differences that is in that workplace, right? And so you have to have the both go together working simultaneously. And we haven't always had that in our organizations and congregations and other institutions in America. In fact, the anti-racism, my fear is that it's become a luxury term, a term that is casually used in order to say, hey, we are part of the game. We're trying to do something where it is not really dealing with the systemic things within that particular congregation or organization. That's just some good stuff. I'm soaking that in and thinking about what it means day in and day out. You know, I have seen a surge in congregations, especially interested in doing anti-racism work, interested in learning more about what it means to participate in racial equity work since this summer. You know, we had the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd that not only kicked off protests, but it seemed to kick off a new wave of awareness. People were at home, maybe not working. Mm-hmm. They couldn't look away. Right. So it kind of fanned the flames of a national fire in our collective consciousness. And and I've seen that translate into some momentum desired to kind of bring in this work. But I'm I'm wondering if that's going to start to fall off some. And so, Mackenzie, from your perspective, have you also seen kind of an increase in demand for this kind of work? And do you have that same fear? Or do you think there's enough sustained momentum that we'll continue to see more and more organizations jump into this work and actually be about it instead of just paying lip service to it? Yeah, outstanding question, Ben. Yes, I've seen a great uptick in some of the non-traditional groups being involved in anti-racism work. When I mean non-traditional, sometimes you can get a view of some very progressive organizations or congregations who maybe have not been very inclusive, and you can just tell that they really desire to be inclusive. They are doing everything in their power, and God bless them, because that's, I love when a person's heart is hungry or or organization's heart is hungry. And then you have others who get on board because it's really popular, Mm -hmm. right? It's the N-word, it's the buzz. And so let me take you back a little bit in history in that I ask myself this question when I work with companies and organizations and things of this nature, Who is this for? Right. Is it to get rid of your guilt? 
Is it to seem to be in step or is it for the profit or the bottom line of my organization, right? How can we make more money by capitalizing on what's going on right now? So way back when it was called affirmative action and had data in which supported why we have these disparities, racial disparities, why we wouldn't hire veterans and so forth and so on in our workplaces. And so from a statistical analysis, we were able to prove that based upon availability in this particular region for this particular type of job, these are the applicants you could hire, right? And it wasn't a forced hire, but if your pool is diverse, you have a greater opportunity to hire a diverse individual, right? And so people got tired of that type of accountability. Mm. And so the word diversity came into being. It's not a word that disadvantaged people came up with. It's a word that the majority population came up with to feel better about their own workplaces. So it was easier to say, yes, we're seeking diversity, right? All these differences versus this is how you should hire in order to make sure that your workplace becomes diverse, right? Very accountable It was affirmative action, but people didn't like it. So it became diversity. And then people got a little tired of diversity and then inclusion came in. So it was diversity and inclusion. And now you hear the term equity, right? And where am I going with this? What I'm simply saying is that there's been this type of evolution of the word. And the question is, why? Why? Is it so that... White Americans can feel more comfortable in their own organizations and workplaces, right? And so why is there so much backlash with the term anti-racism? In fact, when you use the term racism, people get, I mean, you talk about emotional flare-ups. I mean, it comes in very fast. But I applaud organizations, both white and otherwise, who are saying, yes, we're going to take a very strong systemic look at our practices, our policies, what we are intentionally and unintentionally doing in order to create a better workplace so that we can increase our innovation, we can increase our trust, we can increase our creativity. Uh, Research shows that we will decrease doubling up or doing work that is not meaningful when we have diverse people in the workplace and there is high levels of trust, right? Duplication goes away. Absenteeism goes down and the list goes on and on. Yeah, you make a great point, Mackenzie, about so many aspects of organizations and even culture. We have language that we use to describe certain realities or ways of being, but when we use those terms without fully understanding those terms, or perhaps when we've used those terms for too long, they lose their meaning, they lose their power, they lose their force. And so the importance of the fact that we embrace changes in language and terminology as they come, and when we hear anti-racism, if we have a negative feeling about that, it's incumbent upon us to educate ourselves about what that means. And it's also incumbent to understand the differences between inclusion, diversity, and equity. And so many times, especially when you hear criticisms, it's easy for one side to criticize another by simply hijacking or taking some of its terminology and making it feel like those terms are bad things. Absolutely. And even just beyond this topic on any topic, right? And so it's so important for us to back up and say, what kind of language are we using? What do we mean by these terms? And understanding what's the purpose and what's the function of these efforts, and especially to this, inclusion, equity, anti-racism, to understand 
why do we want to engage in this? It's not just about looking good. It's not just about feeling good about ourselves, but what purpose are we trying to accomplish? That's so illuminating. And thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Matt, for your addition to that, because it is not, uh, I've said many times that this is not a work. This is a lifetime of living, being, doing. It's more than work uh, because the mental toll that racism plays on our society has risen to the level where some doctors have suggested that it is a mental illness and that this mental illness is causing all types of stress and anxiety and depression, particularly for those of us who have been oppressed or depressed by the acts of racism. So when an organization says that we want to be an anti-racist organization and you do not include the mental component of that, I think you've missed a real great opportunity. And you don't hear that talked about, right? All you hear about, if we can change this policy, we can change that policy, right? So we've seen that practice in our society where policies have been changed, voting rights laws, policies and practices have been changed, and but yet there's still strong discrimination, racist things still being done in particular states when it comes to voting, right? Making it more difficult to vote in the United States where we tell other countries, you should make it easy to vote. One person, one vote, and let the majority win. I want to move into kind of some of the practical things that you have experienced in your in your time, McKinsey. And, and so I'm wondering if you have, you know, just kind of off the top of your head, the do's and don'ts as you have been in organizations or observed from afar organizations trying to do either anti-racism work or diversity and inclusion work. What missteps have you seen that feel pretty common and easy to make? And, and what things have you seen that are working really well? So you're really trying to get me in trouble today, aren't you? Uh-huh. I mean, that's, that, I think this is what this is all about, but uh, I'm not afraid to speak truth to power. So power on, let's, let's, let's do this. Go. Well, the first thing is that aspirational statements are made with no intentional systematic change, right? They're aspirational. It sounds great. We'll put them on our websites. We will bumper sticker it all over the world. But the internal mechanism or the institution in itself is not changing, right? And that is the most common challenge that I've seen in my work in this field for many, many, many years. And it still persists to this very day, this type aspirational thing. But another area is the lack of or too much emphasis on the ROI, the return on investment. And so what becomes more important is the profit the financial gain than the person and their individual self-worth, right? If I go back to my basketball days, if I feel secure while playing for a particular team, even though it may be arduous, it may be like, wow, I mean, coach is really riding us. If I know that there is tremendous amount of trust in that environment, I'll run through a wall for that coach. I'll work as hard as I because I know that my contribution is being valued. And as a result, my team has a chance to win or play at a quality level that makes a difference. And so when it's always about the money, what can we get out of it? So let's do diversity and inclusion and equity work. So let's see what we can get out of it. Let's see how much money we can make off this. Right. 
And then who is left holding the brunt of that? It is usually the people for which need this type of high-level trust in the organization. We end up carrying that load. The burden is, is upon us. And real quick, in case someone's listening and thinking to themselves, oh, yep, I definitely know corporate America does that, you know, but that doesn't really apply to us as congregations. If you are thinking about how diversity and inclusion work is going to affect your tithes and your giving, if you're thinking about how it's going to affect your membership, it's the same thing, right? And so, so congregations make these same kind of calculations day in and day out. Either they choose to talk about it because they're hoping it might lead to an increase in giving or membership or... They choose not to talk about it because they fear it will lead to a decrease in giving and it'll chase people away. And so I just wanted to make that connection for folks that might be not drawing that line themselves. Well, thank you for drawing that line because most of our congregations, they operate as a business. And don't be mistaken that tithes and offering is a part of that equation. And so ministry that is extensive is a ministry that is expensive. So it makes a huge difference. Another area that I look at is, how can I say this? A lot of churches and congregations and organizations and things of this nature would say, we need to get out our proverbial box. Let's get out of the comfort zone. My contention is that sometimes we have to learn how to fight in the box. We have these parameters and things set up. We have... Our denomination may have certain types of restrictions and things of this nature. So sometimes you have to learn to battle in the box right where you are, right in the communities that you serve and uh, and learn how to fight fair in the box. And then we have to know what it means to be outside the box is that means we are now uh, stretched or that means we are just a step outside. How far out are we willing to go when it comes to the box? And so some of the things that I've seen over the years with congregations and organizations is that we will make a hire that is a diverse hire, or we will have a minister of worship come in and that person may be diverse, or we may incorporate different songs or whatever. And it's just one, just that one song or just that one new hire that is different from everybody else. And I would submit that that is just barely outside the box. And so people make that mistake. And once we get outside that box, then we say, okay, we've arrived. And so we let our guards down. We, we say, hey, we don't need any more. But that's never been subjected to those who are in the majority position. They can hire as many, have as many songs, do as many type of outreach projects and things of this nature. And there's never a cap. So this kind of artificial cap just outside the box is a big thing. And then another mistake I see, I don't want to say mistake as much as a challenge, is the inability to reimagining what the box can look like. And what that means is that maybe the box has to take on a new shape. Maybe it needs to be a little bit more linear than it is vertical. I don't know, but a lot of people and organizations will focus just on the actual shape itself and never try to reimagine the shape. When you reimagine a shape, you can add more people to it. When you reimagine a shape, you can add more thoughts to it. You can have new music attached to it. You can have a new ministry that comes in. We have a great example of 
technology now influencing and, and perpetrating or penetrating rather into a lot of congregations. And that's reimagining the box. That's looking at something in a different way. And sometimes in the same constraints of what we have. What have you seen that organizations have done well? Like what has worked for organizations that are trying to do this? Oh man, organizations that have done really well are congregations, organizations who are truthful to themselves. They absolutely know it. They embrace the privilege in terms of saying, yes, I have it. We have it. This is how we've benefited from it. We want to share in this wealth. We want to share in the great things that have happened to us. And there is a recognition of the devaluing of other ethnic groups, uh, in particular African-American and the Latinx communities and things of this nature. Anything that was different was considered less than, right? And so when a organization says, that was us, we did that, right? And this is another area I've seen where organizations have just thrived in. We put the system together. And so let us work on this to resolve it, right? And they will oftentimes incorporate diverse views of how to do that but they really take their own ownership of it and say, we will make a change. Another area of great influence is that what I see very successful is that they will look at the bottom line, the profit, the return on investment and say, okay, this can make us a better or stronger organization. But in going forward, we have to change our leadership. And organizations do it. I know of one organization where the CEO stepped down, another organization where the chairman of the board stepped down and had somebody else of color or gender to take that role and say, yes, we will be better. And this is how I am the example of making it better. Are some of the ways that I've seen it to really do the hard work, you're not going to get a lot of publicity on it. <laughs> So organizations and congregations that are being lauded for all the great stuff that they do, maybe that's their reward. They are seen as what they do. But if you really want to work at this in a very systemic way, in a very deep way, it's hard work. And I love organizations and congregations who are saying, I will do the hard work. We will do the hard work. So that means they may lose members. Maybe the amount of tithes and offerings that come in decrease as a result of it. And when I've seen organizations and congregations do that and they still stick with it, there is no doubt in my mind that the end game will be for the betterment, not only of their particular organization, but for that community and for our state. Yeah, I think it's so crucial for organizations to be willing to, and this sounds harsh, but, but to die. It, for at least a part of them to die. If a, a part of your identity is steeped in something that is unjust or unhealthy, then to be committed to transformation means you've got to be willing to let that fall away so that you can be transformed and birthed anew, which, you know, if you're a Christian congregation, this idea of rebirth is at the very heart of the gospel message, right? And yet we so often resist death and rebirth when it comes to things that are political or organizational in nature. But I think that's what we're called to do. But it's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of organizations and congregations. You know, you bring up an outstanding point. 
because it reminds me of Adam and Eve. They were told that, hey, this tree you do not eat out of. If you eat out of this tree, you shall surely die. Well, they did eat. Did they die at that instant? Mm-mm. Not physical. But the separation from God and what God would have us to be, that started to deteriorate. Right. And so what I'm saying is that sometimes when we get into this work and to your point about dying to self is that our thinking must die off. Our always way of doing things and behaving must die off. Our ways in which we look at how we put institutions together must die off and come up with a more diverse way, an inclusive way of putting something together, having different people at the table. Right. In certain cities where there was uh, female governors, and I'm not talking about any political party or anything like that, but or female mayors or whatever the case may be, there was a greater level of sensitivity towards COVID that some of us as males didn't have because they cared about the person in a different way, right? Men care about people as well. So I'm not speaking against that. But my point is because they are diverse people at the table and that is incorporated is inclusive, their values, what they see, they can have different types of outcomes, right? And it leads to systemic change. It leads to a new way of doing and being and behaving in congregations and organizations. So, McKinsey, as we think and talk about how hard it is for organizations to embrace this cycle of death and rebirth as it relates to anti-racism and diversity and inclusion work, I have people coming to mind, leaders coming to mind, congregations coming to mind in which the leadership, whether that's a pastor, a CFO, a CEO, they have caught the vision. But there are large portions of the congregation, of their leadership team, that isn't where they're at. And they're fighting with the attention of how do I bring these people along so they don't get lost, while also meeting the urgency of this time and place so that the people that have been lost don't have to continue to remain lost and without the resources Mm -hmm. and opportunities they need. So can you speak to those leaders that find themselves in that position of trying to bring folks along with them without sacrificing the urgency and the importance of the work? Wow. Great question. Number one, some people get on right away. Some people get on number two as the train is moving and other people get on after the success. Right. And so you must create room to allow anybody to get on at any time, at any point. Okay. the other thing I would encourage that particular leader or CEO or CFO is to lean into the discomfort, lean into it, ask the question, why is this so uncomfortable to you? Let's have that conversation. Where is this coming from? Let's trace it back. So I understand the fruit. I can see that you're upset about it, but let's look at the root. What is the root reason for this? Right. And so if we can do that, then we can move the ball forward. And then I'm reminded of Jesus when he went to the garden at Gethsemane to pray. Right. It went all 12 with him. So this work narrows the number of people that really want to be a part of a life changing, life transformation congregation or organization. It is the heart of God. It is the love of God that covers the multitude of sins. So if we get back to love as God loved us, forgave us, had mercy on us, then we can demonstrate that to our congregants, even through these very difficult times. And some people who say, peace out, I can't be about this. We still have to love them. We still have to care. So it's not about just we're going to do this no matter what people are saying, 
we have to lean into our people in that discomfort and try to bring them along. But they may come along at different points, and we just have to be open to that. Mm. I appreciate that perspective. What's one of the things I appreciate about you, especially as you have led our organization through this work, I have a tendency to want to be like, get on or get off. The train is moving. <laughs> I'll catch y'all sure. later. <laughs> but you've been good at reminding me like, mm, we have to be respectful at different paces. It doesn't mean we're not doing the work, but everyone that is slow it doesn't mean they're never going to get on. Absolutely. Right. And we have to kind of leave the door open for them to hop on at some point. Absolutely. Mackenzie, we really appreciate your time and sharing your work with us. Such an important topic. And we'll continue to explore this in uh, the resources section and our conversation about this interview. But where can folks, other than the Center for Congregations, where can folks find you, find your work, find information, or be able to get in contact with you if they're curious to hear or learn more? Okay, yeah, you can always reach me at McKenzie Scott Lewis at gmail.com. That's M C K E N Z I E S C O T T L E W I S at gmail.com. That's a great way to get a hold of me. My operation is based on truth, trust, and transparency. Speak it, give it, live it. So if you want to have a serious conversation, that's what we will operate out of. So direct all complaints, frustrations, et cetera, to that email address. Don't even worry about including Matt and I. Just go straight to McKinsey. <laughs> yeah, and if you, if you have good things to say, you can email us at podcast at Center for There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say as well to you two for taking on this great venture that we have at the Center for Congregations. I think it's even beyond our center and providing a platform for conversations like this and many, many others to take place. This is wonderful work. So thank you too for your gifts. We appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you, Mackenzie. I felt it was really rich to be able to talk with someone like McKinsey, who has had you know years of experience leading organizations through this work, though there were times where it felt like the line from what an organization might do in the for-profit world and what is working or isn't working for a congregation was kind of blurred. I still felt like there were some really good takeaways from that conversation, especially as he delineated what the difference is between like diversity, inclusion, equity, and anti-racism work. What are some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation, Matt? Well, it was really helpful for me personally to hear, because I've heard terms equity, inclusion, diversity, and honestly, I don't know that I had ever taken the time to understand the difference between them, that they were kind of bucketed in my head as, okay, this is racial justice. So it was really helpful for me to have him lay those out and understand, it's almost like they're stair steps, it seems. You know, you move from diversity to inclusion to equity, and that was really helpful for me to wrap my head around because I think it would be very easy if you don't understand that difference to think that diversity, you know, if you have a diverse staff or if you have a diverse congregation, your work is done. 
but the recognition that no, your work's not done. You have people who are there, but are you listening to them? And then are, are you also working to resource them to get them to where they need to be in the community? I think congregations or really anyone when they hear about this idea of a progression of work or they look at other organizations that have been reading about this and studying about it and learning about it for years, maybe it can feel overwhelming. You know, if you're just getting started thinking, oh my God, are we going to have to have these tense conversations every week for the next 10 years? Is it always going to be this difficult? Are we always going to feel like we're failing? And so one of the important things I think to remember is that the answers, yes and no, there are going to be tense moments that come up because whenever you're learning something, you have to kind of reach the limit of your current knowledge in order to move past it. And that's that's uncomfortable. But this work exists in many different forms. It's not just learning new ideas. It's engaging with people. It's building relationships. It's getting to create and reimagine programs and policies and practices. And, and while that can be hard, I think there can also be joy in it. And so as an organization, as you're thinking about this stair step of building and and moving from an awareness of diversity to a desire for inclusion into anti-racism or back and forth, I would just keep in mind that there's opportunity there to utilize the gifts that you all have collectively in innovative ways. And it's important to embrace that opportunity. Yeah. And I hope this isn't too simplistic of an analogy, but just think about, you know, anyone listening, think about roommates, or think about moving in with your spouse, that there's a learning curve. <laughs> and there's conflict, right? That there are times where things don't go well. Yeah. Because there are unspoken expectations or assumptions about the other person. You know, in college, I had some roommates that I had a really hard time with. But you work through it. And there are tense moments, but you learn to live together peaceably. And you might not even be best friends, but at least you learn how to cohabitate in the same space together. And I would imagine that's a little bit analogous to a situation where you want to work on your diversity, your inclusion, and your equity, and it's uncomfortable. But the richness that comes out of those relationships is absolutely worth it. Yeah. And so just doing the hard work and coming out the other side with a stronger you, a stronger community, and a stronger relationship with that person. And it's important, I think, to keep the end in mind. You know, McKinsey talked about motivations that organizations and congregations have for doing this work. And, you know, how there are some for whom the motivation might be increased profit line. It might be increased membership. It might be just keeping young adults in the church. And while any one of those in and of itself isn't inherently bad, it's also not going to sustain you when the work gets really hard. You know, and conversely, there are folks who avoid the work because they fear the consequences and repercussions of it, which is why I appreciated the conversation we had about being willing to die so that you can be recreated as an organization or even as a person sometimes in terms of like a death to a piece of your identity that you've been holding on to for dear life. And so the motivations that organizations embrace and engage with around this work, I appreciated that we were able to kind of dive into that and name that head on. Yeah, I think that's so important. And especially what he said about the dying and the rebirth just struck me. And one of the things that's really struck me so much, Ben, in, in so many of our conversations is if you're from the Christian faith tradition, so much of this goes back to a theological framework. And I think sometimes we forget that, that as he talked about the laying aside of privilege, it's like when you think about from a Christian perspective, the example of Christ, that he laid aside his divine nature I mean, he was both divine and human, of course, but but laid aside the privileges that came with that. And the way Scripture uses the word, it's he condescended, right, to be one of us, to be human. And as a reminder that if you are a Christian listener, 
then you're called to be like Christ. And I think that's a model that's incumbent upon those of us who are part of the Christian faith to follow, that we lay aside our privilege for the benefit of others. And I know that the times that I have gotten uptight about conversations about inclusion or anti-racism, upon reflection, it's usually those places where I'm thinking about my rights and my privileges. But that's absolutely the wrong category, because that's not what, as a Christian, we are called to do. We are called to lay aside our privileges. We are called to lay aside those things for the benefit of others. And, you know, going all the way back to Abraham in the Jewish scriptures that he, you know, God said, I will bless you so that you will bless the nations. You know, blessing is not a selfish thing to be held and then to be defended, but rather a thing to be given and then laid aside sometimes or even often for the benefit of others. And I just heard that thread running through our conversation with Mackenzie. Absolutely. And I would name it for myself as being about holding space uh, with people. I want to be able to live into my fullness in such a way that also allows you to bring your full self into relationship with me. And I don't know any, well, maybe I do, but that to me seems like such an obvious thing for people to want to do. And so when it comes to issues of almost anything, it's not just anti-racism. When you're talking about patriarchy, gender roles, religious differences, really almost any difference that can cause division. If the way I'm showing up creates a tension or creates perceived harm to you or makes it more difficult for you to access the fullness of your being and to show up as yourself, then I'm going to want to shift something, whether it's a systemic dynamic, an institutional dynamic, or just the way I orient myself in our relationship. I think if you're acting out of an ethos of love, that is the natural consequence to your point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and another thing that I found really interesting was Mackenzie's conversation about why are you doing this? What's the heart of the reason why you're making these changes? And it reminded me of a light switch that went on for me as I was learning ethics in a seminary course. And stick with me here. These are big terms, but they're important. There's an ethical way of looking at things that's called deontological ethics. It means it's essentially kind of it's because of the way things are. And it means that essentially there are rules for how things are and you ought to follow them. So imagine, you know, this list of rules on a board and you check those off as you go and say, I didn't do this. I did do this. And so, okay, I'm a moral person. I'm an ethical person because I've done that. And that's one way of looking at it. But an ethical system that I resonated much more with is something called virtue ethics, that we behave rightly because we're the kind of person that behaves rightly, meaning that the importance of life is to be shaped into a person who does the right thing out of your own character and identity rather than some external list of rules and values. Now, it's not that the rules aren't important, they help guide us. But it's about doing the right thing because you're the kind of person who just tends to do right things. And so it's more about the transformation of the person becoming something good, and so therefore they act out of that in good ways. So I think it's an important thing for some congregational leaders who are listening and thinking about that, that, you know, why does your community choose to act ethically? Is it because you have a sense that there are this list of rules that have been provided to you, or because you're trying to transform the people in your congregation into the kind of people who behave rightly in the world? And so thinking about this conversation from that angle, I just want to be a person who's welcoming and loving to anyone I encounter. And so, of course, it's important for me then to pay attention to topics of anti-racism and the other things that we discussed during the episode. I love that you brought that up because I think holding on to our why 
is so important, especially as it relates to this work. And so if we can get back to what is the bottom line for us, you know, we are doing this because, and then fill in the blank. And I think when you have those hard moments as a lay leader or a clergy member, it's important not only for you yourself to be able to reflect back on what that core why is for why you even engage this work, but to remind your community of what that why is so you can continue to hold it together in the midst of the difficulty. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And that to me speaks of the difference between obligation and conviction. That if you feel like you have an obligation to do something, obligation often feels burdensome and it's really difficult. And when times get hard, it's tempting to lay aside that burden. But when you have a conviction, the conviction that something is right or something is the way that you should be, and you carry that deeply in you, then when the times get difficult, you can rely on that conviction. It's almost like conviction is a ground under your feet and obligation is a burden on your shoulders, right? Mm. And so just thinking about that difference and, and finding conviction, like what is the conviction that your congregation has about this topic? Not the burden, not the obligation, but what's the conviction about why this is something that you should be pursuing? So having this kind of ground that's underneath your feet, I think stabilizes you. So when you do have to have those hard conversations about which parts of our community need to fall away, which parts of our tradition do we need to let go of or reimagine or reinvent, you're still standing on solid ground, right? You can build up structures around you, tear down structures around you, but your feet are still firmly planted. And that grounding is what is crucial. And maybe that's the grounding that congregations or people don't do enough as they start this work. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. We could talk about this probably all day, and I'm not even exaggerating, but for the sake of the audience (laughs) and for the sake of our time commitment, let's just transition on over to the resources. All right, so next up, resources. All right, welcome back. We have resources that we want to share today. There's a lot of ways that we can go in the resources section. So, uh, Matt, I'm curious to know what what you thought was most compelling. Yeah, the first thing I want to bring to the table is something by Tori Williams Douglas. On her website, she's got a page called White Homework. And this has been really helpful for me as I've heard people of color talk about conversations about race and racial justice, racial equity. They talk about how tiring it can be sometimes when they encounter somebody and that person wants them to essentially give them the 101. Like, what are the basics? You know, they're just starting the conversation. They're just thinking about it. And the fatigue that comes from that for them, that it's like, I have to explain this all over again. So she developed this webpage called White Homework that has a bunch of different resources on it. It's got some podcasts where these issues are discussed. It has books that talk about these topics, articles that talk about these topics. And it's just a wonderful primer for getting into, on a ground level, this conversation so that you can then move into next level conversations with people after you've kind of done this on your own. And just so many resources out there. There's a couple others like this, but I really like Tori appreciate her heart. And I think this is a really good representation of the kind of thing that anyone can do on their own. Just get on the webpage, read some of the articles, listen to some of the podcasts, and begin to take this journey on your own. Yeah, I'm glad you brought something that is foundational or can be foundational for folks. I think sometimes that's missing. And so I appreciate that you were able to bring that today. The resource that I brought, I think dovetails well with what you just talked about. And it is a guide, really a 13-page or so document 
put out by the women of the ELCA called How to Have Helpful Conversations About Race in the Church. It's literally a how-to manual giving step-by-step instructions on what it means to have a process that allows you to have helpful and healthy dialogue regarding a complex and complicated topic. Step one is context, gaining knowledge of the racialized context in society. Step two is connect, choosing to create and nurture soul connections. Step three is to advocate, to practice racial justice advocacy within your congregation. And then it walks you through how do you learn context? How do you create connections? How do you go about advocating? What are the skills you need to develop? And then there's a short list of nine healthy ways to have conversations. So Again, it's not going to give you a lot of depth, but if you are just starting out and in the the dialogue phase of exploring white supremacy, white privilege, of exploring diversity and inclusion, this is going to give you some helpful tools in structuring and setting up the guardrails of that conversation, either in your small group, in your congregation, among your leadership team, wherever you're having it, I think it will be helpful. Yeah, thanks for bringing that, Ben. And we love it when we find resources from denominations because it represents work of people who are doing similar work to what you're doing. So even if you are not ELCA, this is a resource that definitely could be beneficial for you because they're talking about it from a congregational and systems perspective, not necessarily trying to use their theology as the framework per se. And and it's interesting. It's great what you can actually learn from other people who are also in the same kind of work that you are. So the first two resources that you and I brought up are for people that are kind of in the very early stages or in the earliest stages of this journey. And and I'm wondering if you had any other resources for people that might be further down the line. Yeah, so to get a little more depth, there's an author by the name of Jamar Tisby. He's written two books in the recent past, and one of them is called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. And, you know, it's a striking title, and it's a title that I was a bit taken aback by, but, you know, he is a historian, he understands the historical perspectives, and so if you have the courage, it's a great book to get into, to just understand how these systems of oppression have existed in congregations as well as larger society, and, you know, he helps unpack that. He also has a book that just came out called How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. And it's got not only just background on these things, but he gives actual specific steps to take in thinking through it. Because so many people, once they have an awareness of these issues, they're not quite sure what to do next. And this book is a really good way to think about how do I walk in the world? How do I work with my congregation to actually begin to address some of these things and not just be aware of them? Yeah, moving from awareness to action is really critical in these conversations. And so I'm glad that you were able to bring that up. The second resource that I have is a podcast episode. This one's from On Being with Krista Tippett. And it is a conversation that she's having with Reverend Otis Moss III, who is the senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. He's also the author of several books, a prominent national speaker, civil rights activist. He is a very prominent voice in this field. And he and Krista are dialoguing about Howard Thurman, who is a theologian, an educator, a mystic, a teacher, someone who influenced Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders and really helped shape some of the theology of the movement. And so this podcast isn't necessarily going to help you understand how to have this hard dialogue or even give you like some of the broader overarching understandings of the complexities of systemic injustice. Why I'm bringing it up, though, is because I think it's important to continue to try to ground these conversations in our faith. And if you are a predominantly white congregation wrestling with this, it's important to hear the voices of those who've been doing this grounding for time immemorial. And for those that grew up in the black church, I mean, 
you cannot separate the black church from the struggle against racism. It was, it was birthed from that fire. And so to listen to Reverend Otis Moss III dialogue with and about Howard Thurman, who's an icon, an iconic figure, you're going to learn a great deal about what theology interwoven with anti-racism threads looks like and sounds like and feels like and the actions it causes and produces. And I think in doing so, your understanding of this issue and these issues surrounding it will be expanded, but you'll also maybe find new language or different ways to grow and shift the theology that you carry. So I think there can be a great deal of learning that can be had from listening to Reverend Otis Moss III and Howard Thurman. Specifically, he's talking about Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. So check out this podcast with Krista Tippett. We'll put it a link in the, in the show notes. It's, it's a little less than an hour, so it's not a huge time investment, and it's chock full of great information. Yeah, thanks for bringing that, Ben. I want to squeeze in one more as well. And this is actually another podcast. So we're giving a lot of podcast recos on our podcast. As always, remember, please come back to us. We are your main source of information for congregational life. Uh, no, just kidding. If you find other ones that you like better, uh, please feel free to use your time there. But this one is uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Actually, his podcast, Revisionist History, Season 1, Episode 1, is entitled The Lady Vanishes. And I don't want to give away too much because his podcasts really are a narrative journey, and I don't want to spoil his narrative arc in that, but I think you'll learn a bit about tokenism in that. And tokenism is when, as an organization, you might make one diversity higher and then assume everything's all good, or you know, as someone moves into a position of authority and they're the first person to ever be in that position of authority being the type of person that they are, and then as a society, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief. It's some of the dangers of that. And Malcolm Gladwell is just really, really entertaining. So I'd encourage you to check that out if you have time and you want to listen to another podcast. That would be a good one. Excellent. Thank you for bringing that, Matt. And we always try to have a diversity of resources. So this week just happened to be podcast heavy. Other weeks will be book heavy. Other weeks will have a mix. And so we just try to make sure that we are providing resources that different folks are going to be able to engage with and more comfortable accessing. With that said, if you are a congregation that is trying to have these conversations and you're based in Indiana and you want more help, know that you can reach out to us at any time. We're happy to connect you with additional resources, be they experts and consultants that can guide you through the work or books and media that we have in our databases. We are here to help you do the work that you do as a congregation. And that includes wrestling with diversity and inclusion, wrestling with anti-racism work and how to become an anti-racist congregation. So feel free to reach out to us. You can email us. You find that info on our website. You can also email Matt or I at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. Yeah, and if you're outside of the state of Indiana, don't forget we have the CRG for you, which is a curated list of 1,500 to 2,000 of the best resources we found on various topics related to congregational life. We definitely have collections and resources around anti-racism, diversity, and inclusion efforts, so you can find those there. And you can use the chat feature on that webpage to actually interact with one of the consultants here, and they can even help customize a little bit of your work as well. And as always, please be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Center for Congregations. And if you're listening to this through Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and review so other listeners can find this content and access the information. And as always, we want to thank Jaden Lee for original music and for editing the podcast. And we want to thank the generosity of the Lilly Endowment that allows us to do our work. So for this week's episode of the Center for Congregations podcast, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Matt Burke. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.